Our text this morning will be from Philippians chapter 1, uh, verses 18 through 26. Uh, and uh, I'd like to give a little bit of a context, so I'm going to just read from uh, verses 12 through 17. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. So it appears there were certain Christians who were envious or jealous of Paul. Uh, these are not Judaizers, as they were not preaching circumcision. These are not false teachers. They were preaching the true gospel. They were genuine Christians. But they were jealous of Paul. Maybe they felt that they were being usurped by the Apostle Paul. And now that Paul is in prison, they see a chance to regain their popularity and their status. Maybe they are hoping that when the word gets back to Paul of how much they are doing and the success that they are having, he too might feel envious of them. But as as we will see, Paul couldn't care less regarding their motives. And so we begin in verse 18. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. What then? The Apostle Paul in his letters often poses a question similar to this one. Uh, And so in doing so, he might further elaborate on the topic at hand. We find so many examples in his letter to the church at Rome. Here's only a few. Romans 3, 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Romans 4.1 What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? Romans 6.1 What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Romans 6.15 What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. And then Romans 7, 7. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Here in verse 18 of our text, Paul is asking that same type of question, but he's not asking it about his readers. He's asking the question to himself. In essence, what he is saying is, things being what they are, will I allow what some are doing to trouble me as they thought it would? Notwithstanding their unkind motives, the cause of the gospel is furthered in every way, which is my greatest desire. 
whether some are envious of me or truly motivated by Christ to preach the gospel, nevertheless Christ is proclaimed, and therein I do rejoice. Paul does not begin to pity himself because certain jealous preachers were trying to win applause at his expense. What really matters to him is not what they are doing to him, but what they are doing for the gospel. It would seem that the apostles' joy is so great that it crowds out every other consideration. As we saw in verse 12, Paul's greatest desire is that the gospel was being advanced, even as he recognized it was precisely because of his imprisonment. Remember that Paul's concern here was not the content of the gospel being preached, only the motives of those who preached. Paul would have objected if, they thought, if he thought a false or distorted gospel was preached, even if from the best of motives. When writing to the church of Galatia, Paul used the strongest form of rebuke and condemnation toward the false teachers there and those who were receiving their teaching. Galatians 1, 6 through 9. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and who want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Or from 2 Corinthians 11, verses 2 through 4, For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband, to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Notice that in Galatians and in 2 Corinthians, Paul is referring to a different gospel, a different Jesus, and a different spirit from the one they received. Even later in this, le- uh, in this very letter, Paul warns his readers about the ever-present danger of those who would seek to distort the true gospel. In Philippians 3, verses 2 and 3, Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So had these brothers, who were envious of Paul, been in vital error, he would not have rejoiced. Paul could only rejoice at the good result, even if motivated by their bad intentions. What then? What does it matter? For Paul, it didn't matter at all. Both groups were motivated by Paul's imprisonment. Some were motivated in a good way, and some were motivated in a bad way. Yet nonetheless, they were motivated to preach Christ. And Paul could wholeheartedly rejoice in that. 
verses 19 and 20. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Paul knew that the Lord was in control of all events, even though his imprisonment and impending trial made the situation look pretty dark. Paul was so confident because he knew that the Philippians prayed for him. His deliverance in the present situation was connected to the prayer of the Philippians. We might ask, what if the Philippians didn't pray for Paul? Would God's deliverance of Paul be hindered? It certainly seems that Paul is so intertwining their prayers for him, along with the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, that shows what a serious matter prayer is. What a privilege we have, church, and a responsibility we have as Christians to go before God in prayer. Let us not neglect those opportunities. How could Paul appear calm under imprisonment and in the face of possible death? Paul knew something about the power of prayer, as he will soon remind his readers in chapter 4. Philippians 4, verses 6 and 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, all human logic and reasoning is surpassed, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. However, it was not only the prayer of the Philippians in and of itself that would meet Paul's need. It was the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ that came to Paul through the prayer of the Philippians. Paul's needs were met by the Spirit of God, but that provision to Paul was brought about by the prayers of the Philippians. Paul speaks of his earnest expectation and hope. This is the language of faith. Only the true believer can speak in this way. Paul mightily trusted God here, and Paul first trusted God that he would not be at all ashamed. He believed that God would not cause him to be ashamed or that God would not turn against him in the matter. Being put to shame would be the result of failing to proclaim the gospel clearly and with conviction, even before magistrates and even before Caesar. Because death was better than life for Paul, he could speak truth with conviction, having no fear of the outcome. Though he was in prison and awaiting trial, Paul had the confidence that he was in the center of God's will. He was not ashamed of his chains. We read in 2 Timothy 2, verses 8 through 10, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. 
or 2 Timothy 1, verses 11 and 12. For which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. God gave him boldness to speak while in prison, and God would later give him boldness when he was to finally stand trial before Caesar. The book of Acts ends with this wonderful testimony, Acts 28, verses 30 and 31. He, Paul, lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Paul also knew he would not be ashamed at the end of this life as he looked forward to the day when he would meet Jesus face to face. Some of the questions I ask myself, and maybe we should all ask ourselves, what does my heart long for? Where do I find my greatest desires and hope? What brings me joy in this life? How is my life glorifying to God? In whatever circumstance, Paul could have earnest expectation and hope and full courage. And why did he need courage? Because now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Even as, excuse me, even as Paul was fully trusting in God, he was not omniscient. He admitted to the Philippians that he might not be released from this present imprisonment, but it might instead result in his martyrdom. In Romans 14.8, he writes, For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. Paul lived his life not to preserve and promote himself, but to glorify Jesus Christ. If Jesus should one day decide that Paul could best glorify him through laying down his life, then Paul would be well pleased by the opportunity. If Paul is acquitted and released, he will continue his apostolic labors. If he is condemned to death, he will go to his Lord with unwavering faith and with a song in his heart. Either way, it will become evident what the Lord, through his grace, can accomplish in the heart of his child. Thus, Christ will be magnified. The thought of Paul's martyrdom must have been hard to the Philippians, who saw God do so many remarkable miracles of deliverance in Paul's life, among them in Philippi. From Acts 16, we are reminded of Paul's divine guidance, leading him right to the very city of Philippi. Acts 16, verses 7 through 12. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia. But the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, 
come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We, re- we remained in this city some days. You'll recall that it was in Philippi that God opened Lydia's heart at Paul's preaching. It was at Philippi that Paul and Silas were thrown in jail after having healed a slave girl who had a spirit of divination. It was there that God miraculously freed them from prison, and even the jailer in charge became a believer. It would have been easy for the Philippians to associate God's glory only with being delivered from one's problems. But that's not always the case. For God can be honored and glorified even in the midst of our problems. In 2 Corinthians 12, Paul was dealing with a certain thorn in the flesh. Verses 8 through 10, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it would leave me, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. It's easy for us to dictate to God how he can can and cannot glorify himself in our lives. Paul wisely left all that up to God. So how could Paul say, I know that this will turn out for my deliverance? Verse 21. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. You just have to pause there. This is a remarkable statement. Who can utter such words as these? It is so contrary to, and it even defies human logic. Paul's deliverance could come from either being let go from imprisonment, or deliverance could come from a martyr's death. An unbeliever is reluctant to depart. He could never say, even so, come Lord Jesus. He desires to live in this present world forever. He knows no other heaven but this earth and clings to it with all the strength he can muster. He hides himself from the very thought of death as he seeks to distract and divert his attention with worldly pleasures and amusements. His ultimate joys and delights and fulfillment are bound up with this earth and his only hope of ever achieving them is in the here and now. His life's motto is, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. In contrast to the unbeliever, 
We notice Simeon's words when the infant Jesus was presented to him in the temple in Jerusalem. Luke 2, verses 27 through 32. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. No one can rightfully say to die is gain unless he is living for Christ. In all of life's endeavors and pursuits apart from Christ, dying is always a loss. If your main pursuit in life is money or possessions, dying is loss. If your main pursuit in life is fame, dying is loss. If your main pursuit in life is pleasure, yes, dying is loss. You may hear someone say, if you lose your health, you've lost everything. Is that true for the Christian? Poor health may bring about earthly limitations and suffering, but it can never take away our joy in Christ. It can never take away the hope to which he has called us, and it can never take away the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. In fact, it is in moments of weakness that our faith deepens as we meditate on the one thing that is truly important, our relationship with Christ. To live for Christ is to live for his glory. Paul would say in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Christ had become for Paul the motive of his actions, the goal of his life and ministry and the source of his strength. 2 Corinthians 5.15 And he, Christ, died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Later on in, in the very, this very book of Philippians, chapter 3, in verse, verses 8 through 11, he says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings because like him, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Wow, that's what an outlook that is. To live as Christ means to count everything as loss now in this life in comparison to the value of gaining Christ in the next 
We must be careful here to not misunderstand what Paul is saying. These are not the words of a man who is sighing after heaven but resigned to living on earth. This is not the utterance of someone who is fed up with living and couldn't take life any longer. So now the only hope is that heaven is close at hand. For Paul, to live is Christ. And that is exciting. This was Paul's life motto. Living, he will say in the next verse, means fruitful labor in which he can take the greatest delight. Although the prospect of heaven is always before us, living for Christ, pursuing Christ, serving Christ, witnessing for Christ, will make the joys of heaven even more wonderful. And when it's time for God to call us home, it will truly be gain. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 6 through 9, So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage. And we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For the Apostle Paul, this is a win-win proposition. To live is Christ, and to die is to be with Christ. And therefore, in comparison with life, it is the greatest gain. And so again, I asked myself these questions as I was convicted reading these passages, and ask yourself the same thing. What what motivates me? Where do my desires and passions lie? What is the overarching theme and goal of my life? Is it to magnify Christ? My death will be gained to me only to the extent to which I magnify Christ in my earthly life. Can I say with a psalmist, Psalm 42, verses 1 and 2, As a deer pants for flowing streams, So pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Let's move to verses uh, 22 through 24 here in our text. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Paul was confident that God intended him to be fruitful. There was no doubt in Paul's mind that this was God's plan for him. If Paul lived, it would be a fruitful life. Souls, one for eternity through his further ministry, the edification of believers, the establishment of churches. The prospect is wonderful. Paul knows that. Should he be acquitted and released, he will again avail himself of every opportunity to proclaim the gospel far and wide. Yet Paul expresses that he is at an impasse regards. Uh, with regards to his continuing to live 
and serve the Philippians or to depart and be with Christ. Knowing that his death could be gain, both for the gospel and for him personally, Paul was torn between being with the Lord or continuing to minister to the Philippians and others. Paul's desire to depart is the same desire that is common to all believers. It means to finally be done with sin and temptation. It means to see those brothers and sisters who have gone to heaven before us. Most of all, it means being in the very presence of Christ, the lover of our souls, and that is better by far. The apostles' difficulty was not between living in this world and living in heaven, because these, uh, between these two there is no comparison. But it was between serving Christ in this world and enjoying him in the next. Paul is fully aware that there is no wrong choice here. And it does not mean that Paul literally had the prerogative of choosing his fate. But it is a reference to his personal preference. The ultimate choice, of course, is in God's hands. Notice also that there is no intermediate state between life and death. The apostle knows that when his soul departs from this earthly life, it is immediately with Christ. It does not go out of existence until the day of the resurrection, nor does it go to sleep. There is no purgatory. It at once enjoys blessed fellowship with the Savior. This is very far better. In the original Greek, it is very force, a very forcible statement. By far the more preferable. There's like three comparisons there. The language used here is exuberant. In Paul's very last letter, before his departure, he writes in 2 Timothy 4, verses 6 through 8, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Do you love his appearing, church? Are we waiting for his appearing? Paul was certain of what awaited him after this life was over. And if you are in Christ this morning, you also have that certainty and sure hope. As Paul was contemplating the joys of heaven, his pastoral heart realizes the need of the Philippians. The apostle places this objective need over against his own subjective desire. He is convinced that his continued life on earth, enabling him to impart further pastoral care upon the believers at Philippi, must be given serious consideration. The Philippian church had existed for not much longer than a decade. Only yesterday, some of its members had emerged from the idolatry and the immorality of their society. Though it was a wonderful church in many ways, it had its weaknesses, and it was confronted with real dangers. Accordingly, Paul is ready to remain in his present state 
if that be God's plan, to forego for now the glories of heaven in order that his life on earth may be lengthened in the interest of the Philippians. The need of the church weighs heavier with him than the desire of his own soul. Verse 25. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. This is Paul's life. For me to live as Christ. This explains the purpose of his remaining with them. Paul's concern is their progress in the faith and their joy in the faith. To preach, to preach Christ and to strengthen the faith of others. That's what Paul lived for. Listen to the heart of Paul as he writes to the church in Rome. Romans 1, verses 11 through 15. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Paul was confident that his situation was in the Lord's hands and that whatever occurred would bring glory to God, regardless of the specific turn it might take. When Paul says, I know that I will remain, he's not saying he knows the certain outcome of his imprisonment, but he does know that he has not yet departed. Even as he is writing this letter to them, he's investing his life for their progress and joy in the faith, imparting to them spiritual truths. Paul's ambition was not for his own advancement, as was the ambition of those who preached Christ out of envy. Paul's ambition was for the advancement of the gospel and the spiritual growth of the saints. Having convinced himself that it is better that he remain a while longer for their sake and that such work was needed by the church at Philippi, he regards it as entirely probable that he will remain on earth a while longer. Nevertheless, because his likelihood of being released was only his personal conviction, he makes allowance in his previous explanation for the possibility that things might not turn out favorably. And then verse 26, So that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. The word glory in the ESV could also be translated rejoice or boast. So that you may have ample cause to glory or to rejoice, or to boast in Christ Jesus. Should it please God for Paul to be released, as Paul rather expects, would result in more than merely sentimental rejoicing. Not only would the Philippians be very happy to see him once more, they would also thank the Lord. In connection with God's mercies bestowed upon Paul, they would make their boast in the Lord, praising him, and this particularly for bringing their dear friend to them again. 
the return of Paul, the released prisoner, back to Philippi would be of great benefit. It would provide for them deeper and more extended teaching regarding Christ so that their faith might make progress and its joy might be revived, which would lead to their abundant boasting in Christ Jesus through the apostles' visit. Other saints had drawn back from Paul due to his arrest and incarceration. Some may have been ashamed to associate with Paul the prisoner, not the Philippians. They had identified with Paul, and it was not the popular or even safe thing to do. If Paul were pronounced innocent by Caesar, he would return to them in victory. He would have been vindicated of wrongdoing, and he would have proclaimed the gospel boldly wherever he went. The Philippians would certainly be able to hold their heads up high in Christ upon Paul's return to them. And note that word again. It implies that the apostle had been in Philippi before on his second missionary journey, as we saw earlier from Acts 16. Although there is some uncertainty among scholars whether Paul was imprisoned in Rome on two separate occasions or only once near the end of his life, there is ample evidence from the pastoral epistles confirmed by considerable early historical testimony that would indicate that Paul was released from this, his first Roman imprisonment, and had opportunity for travel, including a trip through Macedonia again on his third missionary journey before being re-imprisoned and suffering a martyr's death. As the Philippians would experience the progress and joy that Paul's labors among them would produce, they would have new and greater reasons for overflowing with joy. This reason for glorifying would be found in Christ Jesus, of course. But its immediate occasion would be because of my coming to you. His ministry among them would enable them to see more clearly the riches of their salvation in Christ and thus glory in their great God. I pray that that's our hope today, that we may also, by our lives, glory in our great God. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the scriptures we have heard today and this glimpse into the life and ministry of the Apostle Paul. Give us hearts that are desirous of living our lives for your glory. Give us enabling strength to serve you with joy unending. And give us boldness to face any earthly trial as our eyes are fixed on you and your promises. Thank you, Jesus, who has gained for us victory over the grave. Amen.